Chapter 3 of The Northwest Passage by Roald Amundsen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 In Virgin Water. With the departure from Beachy, a new chapter opened in our expedition. We now knew the course we were to take. The die was cast, and we had only to push on and make headway. Our voyage now assumed a new character. Hitherto we had been sailing in safe and known waters, where many others had preceded us. Now we were making our way through waters never sailed in, save possibly by a couple of vessels, and were hoping to reach still farther where no keel had ever ploughed. We were very sanguine. In fact, I may almost say we felt certain that we should make our way through, having been fortunate enough to get thus far already. The ice conditions had been unusually favorable. We had made headway with ease, and almost without hindrance, where our predecessors had had to endure the most terrible struggles against ice and storms. As far as we could judge, the year 1903 must have been a very favorable one as regards ice. We set out from Beachy Island at 1 p.m. on August 24th, heading for Limestone Island at the entrance to Peel Sound. The compass, a floating compass by E.S. Ritchie of Boston, proved most excellent. Owing to the nearness of the magnetic pole, it commenced, of course, to be somewhat slow in turning, but our further progress proved that it was quite serviceable. For as soon as we got into Barrel Strait, we were caught in a fog which hung heavy and dense till the 26th, and when it cleared, we sighted the land around Peel Sound. We encountered no ice, with the exception of a few narrow strips of old sound ice carried by the wash. Of large polar ice, we saw absolutely nothing. Between Sherard Head on Prince of Wales Land and Cape Court on North Somerset, we encountered the first large accumulation of ice. Having the sun in our eyes, we took it, in the mirror-like glitter of the calm sea, to be a compact mass of ice extending from shore to shore. It seemed evident to me that we had now reached the point whence our predecessors had been compelled to return, the border of solid unbroken ice. Happily, we were mistaken, as, in fact, we were several times afterwards, under similar circumstances. With the sun right on the glassy surface of a sea, with pieces of ice scattered over, these may easily present the appearance of one solid continuous mass. This optical illusion is also enhanced by the ice blink constantly occurring in the Arctic Sea. This ice blink magnifies and exaggerates a small block of ice to such an extent that it looks like an iceberg. Especially when looking at it through a telescope at short range, you may easily imagine you are facing a huge ice pack. But on the Arctic Sea, you can never rely on what you fancy you see, however distinct it may appear. Certainty can only be acquired by actual contact. As we drew nearer, the sparkling pieces of ice and the bright water seemed to part. It was the Norlanders, London Hansen, who first discovered our mistake. Added to their long experience in Arctic navigation, they had the advantage over us in their greater practice in the use of the telescope. The mass of ice proved to be simply old, drifted-out fjord ice, which was quite loose. Between the ice and the land on either side, there were large and perfectly clear channels through which we passed easily and unimpeded. A large seal that lay basking in the sun on the ice paid for his indulgence with his life. The entire accumulation of ice was not very extensive. We were soon out again in open water, having escaped with nothing worse than a fright. By nine o'clock at night, we were off Prescott Island in Franklin Strait. This island became a landmark on our voyage. The needle of the compass, which had been gradually losing its capacity for self-adjustment, now absolutely declined to act. We were thus reduced to steering by the stars, like our forefathers, the Vikings. This mode of navigation is of doubtful security even in ordinary waters, but it is worse here, where the sky, for two-thirds of the time, is veiled in impenetrable fog. However, we were lucky enough to start in clear weather. 
Outside the promontory, some pieces of ice had accumulated, otherwise the sea was free from ice. Next day, we had a good lesson in our new mode of navigation, as clear weather alternated with fog all day long. I was walking up and down on deck in the afternoon, enjoying the sunshine whenever it broke through the fog. For the sake of my comrades, I maintained a calm demeanor as usual, but in reality I was inwardly much agitated. We were now fast approaching the De La Roquette Islands. They were already in sight. This was the point that Sir Alan Young reached with the Pandora in 1875. But here he encountered an invincible barrier of ice. Were we and the Yoa to meet the same fate? Then, as I walked, I felt something like an irregular lurching motion, and I stopped in surprise. The sea all around was smooth and calm, and, annoyed at myself, I dismissed the nervousness from my mind. I continued my walk, and there it was again. A sensation as though, in stepping out, my foot touched the deck sooner than it should have done, according to my calculation. I leaned over the rail and gazed at the surface of the sea, but it was as calm and smooth as ever. I continued my promenade, but had not gone many steps more before the sensation came again, and this time so distinctly that I could not be mistaken. There was a slight, irregular motion in the ship. I would not have sold this slight motion for any amount of money. It was a swell under the boat, a swell, a message from the open sea. The water to the south was open, the impenetrable wall of ice was not there. I cast my eyes over our little yoa from stem to stern, from the deck to the mast-top, and smiled. Would the yoa victoriously carry us all, and the flag of our native land, in spite of scornful predictions over waters which had been long ago abandoned as hopeless? Soon the swell became more perceptible, and high glee shone on all our faces. When I awoke at one thirty next morning, it still amazes me that I could go to my berth and sleep like a top into the bargain that night. The swell had become so heavy that I had to sit down to put my clothes on. I had never liked a swell. There is something very uncomfortable about it, with its memories of nausea and headache, dating back to my earliest days of seafaring life. But this swell, at this place and time, it was not a delight, it was a rapture that filled me to the soul. When I came on deck, it was rather dark, but on our beam, not far off, we could faintly discern the outlines of De La Roquette Islands. And now we had reached a critical point. The Yoa was heading into virgin waters. Now, it seemed, we had really commenced our task in earnest. The next doubtful point was Bellow Strait, where McClintock lay for two years waiting for a chance to get through. But the fairly heavy swell indicated an open sea for many miles to the south, and as Bellow Strait was not far ahead, our anxiety was not very great. At 8 a.m. we passed through the strait. The only thing we met was a very narrow strip of broken land ice. The strait itself was densely fog-bound. Outside, the sea was clear. As was to be expected, the swell was followed by a southerly breeze, and we toiled ahead rather slowly. At 5.30 p.m., we met a quantity of ice off Cape Maguire, a fairly broad strip of loose ice. Beyond this, we could see clear water. However, the fog settled down as thick as a wall just as we were about to make for the ice, and enveloped everything in its gray darkness. I decided to put back along the shore and wait till the fog lifted. The night was getting dark, and without a compass as we were, we ran the risk of getting into difficulties that might be pretty serious. So we lay too, but in the darkness of the night we felt many a heavy bump from the ice, and on the whole were far from comfortable. This was the first real drift ice that we met in the strait. Presumably it comes from McClintock Channel. At dawn, 4 a.m., there was a slight break in the fog, but only for a moment. However, it enabled us to study the nature and appearance of the ice, and with a light wind blowing to give us the direction, we proceeded merrily with the engine at full speed until 2 p.m. 
then the fog cleared and bathed in glorious sunshine the tasmania islands lay ahead of us thanks to the slight wind which held out loyally all the time we made satisfactory reckoning the sun is certainly an excellent compass but then it was rarely to be seen hitherto the land along which we sailed had presented a mild and genial aspect with luxuriant vegetation but tasmania islands looked stern and bare for once we were now favored with a good wind with the breeze off our beam a few points abaft all sail set and with the engine working at full power we went splendidly towards james ross strait there was ice to the west but along the land to the south the appearances were favorable i will reproduce here verbatim the entries in my journal for the following two days august thirtieth sunday made a somewhat faulty course last night in the gloom and darkness and became entangled in a large tightly packed body of drift ice it took us a couple of hours or so after daybreak to get out of the ice and into the channel the coast water is very sharply defined here on boothia presumably the tide keeps the coast waters free from ice kept our course along the coast all day and according to dead reckoning should have been near cape adelaide the magnetic north pole of james ross about noon dull weather prevented us from discerning land our only means of guidance the wind baffled us again and again as it was very variable we have had a northerly breeze lately and made good headway the barometer fell a good deal today it is raining freshening up and now at nine p m it is pitch dark it is no easy matter to navigate under these conditions but still we can manage we are now in the channel laying to for the night the land has quite altered its character since we left tasmania islands it varies from high granite to low limestone august thirty first last night there was a sudden marked fall in the barometer the wind which stood along the land from the northern side freshened quickly and rain began to fall we lay to at nine p m at midnight we had to reef sails as there was still a fresh breeze the sea rose quickly and strangely enough as we neared the magnetic pole one or two of the expedition became seasick at three a m we made full sail again the wind had lulled a little still the fog was fairly thick we kept close to the wind on the side where we supposed the land lay at three thirty the fog lifted for a moment and we sighted a small island a little to leeward icebergs and highly piled pack ice soon showed me that this island was lying out towards the ocean itself it was presumably the most northerly of the beaufort group we were sailing closely to the wind as we supposed to the south it subsequently appeared that the wind had veered to the east and this had caused us to drift a good deal towards west the fog parted several times but we saw nothing of the land at eight a m i retired to my berth we continued to keep close to the wind bearing south and intending to make for matty island at eleven o'clock i was awakened by a violent shock and was on deck in an instant we were aground just off a very low island which on further observation proved to be the southernmost of the beaufort islands the vessel had struck amidships on a bank we set all sail and started the engine at full speed and threw out the kedge after a while the vessel got off by means of the sail and the engine as we had not yet commenced to haul on the kedge it seemed we had got on a projecting shoal the vessel struck very hard several times and some splinters of the false keel floated up the pumps were sounded but all was in order after we got off we bore eastward towards boothia keeping close to the wind which had veered toward the south weather keeping fairly clear at four p m we approached something which we took to be an island the chart in fact showed us a very small island here but what faced us as far as we could judge was an island of very considerable extent and very flat however the chart proved to be at fault and this long stretch of land running from north to south was as a matter of fact no island at all but part of the mainland 
I suppose that James Ross, when putting this down as a small island, did so at a time when everything was covered with snow except a small eminence on the northern part of this projecting lowland. It appears that this flat coast bends at its southern point to the west, and almost joins one of the low-lying islands of the Beaufort group. We are now lying at anchor for the night under the lee of the land in six fathoms of water. It is so dark at night that we can discern nothing, and when, added to this, your course is an unknown one, it is not surprising that the gravest errors frequently result. When we heave anchor again early tomorrow, we shall be better able to see the second land point. Here ends my journal entry for the day. From this short extract, it will be evident to most people that navigation in the waters about the magnetic pole is by no means without its discomforts. I was sitting at night, entering the day's events in my journal, when I heard a shriek, a terrific shriek, which thrilled me to the very morrow. Something extraordinary had happened. In a moment, all hands were on deck. In the pitch-dark night, which luckily was perfectly calm, a mighty flame with thick, suffocating smoke was leaping up from the engine-room skylight. A fire had broken out in the engine-room, right among the tanks holding 2,200 gallons of petroleum. We all knew what would happen if the tanks got heated. The Yoa and everything on board would be blown to atoms like an exploded bomb. We all flew in frantic haste. One man rushed down to the engine-room to assist Wick, who had stuck to his post from the outbreak of the fire. Our two fire-extinguishing appliances, which were always ready for use, were first brought into play, and we pumped water on that fire for dear life. In an incredibly short time, we had mastered it. It had broken out in the cleaning waste that was lying saturated with petroleum on the tanks. The next morning, on clearing up the engine room, we found that it was no chance but prompt discharge of duty that had saved us all from certain destruction. Shortly before the fire broke out, Ristvet had reported to me that one of the full petroleum tanks in the engine room was leaking. I bade him draw the petroleum from that tank into one of the empty ones immediately. The order was promptly carried out. On clearing up the engine room after the fire, we found that the tap of the emptied tank had been wrenched right off during the struggle with the fire. Had my order not been carried out promptly, over 100 gallons of petroleum would have spurted out into the burning engine room. I need not enlarge upon what would have been the inevitable sequel. But I hold up the man who so promptly obeyed orders as a shining example. At 4 a.m. next morning, we proceeded southwards along the coast. Elongated low islands with far-projecting shallows extended along this part of the coast. The weather was dark, and as the wind was blowing a fairly stiff gale from abaft, the outlook was most uncertain. As the barometer was falling and the wind still freshening, I decided to seek shelter under the lee of one of these islands and anchor there to await fair weather. But these islands were so surrounded by banks that it was hopeless to get to leeward of them without grounding. I decided to make for the Matty side and seek a harbor there. A strong gale was now blowing. The soundings began to get deeper after we had put off from the coast, but we no sooner got ten fathoms than it began to get shallow again towards Matty Island. The sea was choppy and rough on the banks. At 11 a.m. I anchored in five fathoms of water to leeward of a low island, probably one of the Beverly Islands north of Matty Island. The gale increased steadily and was accompanied by heavy sleet. This was indeed glorious navigation. During the night, the wind slackened, and at 4 a.m. we weighed anchor and proceeded. The weather was tolerably clear, and the wind which had veered around to the west was just the right strength for us. It was my turn at the wheel, and I took my stand on the poop so as to have the best possible lookout. Lund and Ristbet were busy stretching the mainsail. To leeward of us lay a low island with fairly extensive banks projecting out to the east. We had seen this shoal from our anchorage, so I knew how to steer to get clear of it. It was, therefore, an unpleasant surprise when we ran aground, although I had steered well out. 
We got off again immediately, and I put the helm hard to starboard to steer her off from the bank, and it seemed to me that in spite of my reckoning, we had got in among the shallows jutting out from the islands. This, however, was a mistake, as the shoal where we grounded was situated farther to the south and west. Shortly after, we struck again, got off, and grounded again, this time for good. The engine was stopped, as also the work of setting sails. I rushed at once to the crow's nest. The weather was clear, and I could see quite well. The bank we had grounded on was a large, submerged reef, branching out in all directions. It extended to the west toward Boothia as far as I could see. The land right to leeward was probably Matty Island. It was 6 a.m. when we grounded. We immediately launched a boat to take soundings and ascertain the best way to get off again. The shortest way was aft. But as the two banks which we had already struck lay higher in the water than the reef on which we stood, the prospect of getting back over them was very slight. We were therefore obliged to try forward to the south. The soundings gave us little hope. The reef shallowed up in that direction, and we had not more than a fathom of water upon it in the shallowest part. Taking the shortest way ahead, the distance across the reef was about 220 yards. With a few tons of ballast, the Yoa had a draft of six feet. Loaded as she was, she drew ten feet two inches. The prospect of getting across was therefore not brilliant, but we had no choice. We were compelled to lighten the vessel as much as possible. First, we threw overboard 25 of our heaviest cases. They contained dogs pemmican and weighed nearly 400 weight each. Then we threw out all the other cases of the deck cargo on one side to get the vessel to heel over as much as possible. At 8 a.m., the current set to the north, and the water fell one foot. We had grounded at high tide. We now made all preparations for the next high tide. The kedge anchor was put out, and every maneuver was tried to make the vessel heel over. The weather continued fine and calm with sunshine. In other words, it was just the sort of a day when we could have made good headway in these waters. Yet, here we lay and could not move an inch. However, we waited and trusted to the high tide. Our observer availed himself of the favorable opportunity to take our bearings. We were near a little island to the north of Matty Island. High tide was at about 7 p.m. But in spite of all preparations and all our exertions, we could not get the vessel to move an inch forward. When darkness set in about 8 o'clock at night, we had to give up for the day. When I came on deck at 2 a.m. next morning, it was blowing fresh from the north. At 3 a.m., the vessel began to move as if in convulsions. I had all hands called up so as to be ready to avail ourselves of any chance that might present itself. The north wind freshened to a gale accompanied by sleet. We hove on the kedge time after time, but to no purpose. The vessel pitched violently. I took counsel with my comrades, as I always did in critical situations, and we decided, as a last resource, to try to get her off with the sails. The spray was dashing over the ship and the wind came in gusts, howling through the rigging, but we struggled and toiled and got the sails set. Then we commenced a method of sailing not one of us is ever likely to forget, even should he attain the age of Methuselah. The mighty press of sail and the high choppy sea, combined, had the effect of lifting the vessel up and pitching her forward again among the rocks, so that we expected every moment to see her planks scattered on the sea. The false keel was splintered and floated up. All we could do was watch the course of events and calmly await the issue. As a matter of fact, I cannot say that I did feel calm as I stood in the rigging and followed the dance from one rock to another. I stood there with the bitterest self-reproach. If I had set a watch in the crow's nest, this would never have happened because he would have observed the reef a long way off and reported it. Was my carelessness to wreck our whole undertaking, which had begun so auspiciously? Should we, who had got so much farther than anyone before us, 
we who had so fortunately cleared parts of the passage universally regarded as the most difficult should we now be compelled to stop and turn back crestfallen turn back yes that might yet be the question if the vessel broke up what then i had to hold fast with all my strength whenever the vessel after being lifted pitched down on to the rocks or i should have been flung into the sea supposing she were broken up there was a very good prospect of it the water on the reef got shallower and i noted how the sea broke on the outer edge it looked as if the raging north wind meant to carry us just to that bitter end the sails were as taut as drumheads the rigging trembled and i expected it to go overboard every minute we were steadily nearing the shallowest part of the reef and sharper and sharper grew the lash of the spray over the vessel i thought it almost impossible the ship could hold together if she could get on the outer edge of the reef which in fact was almost lying dry there was still time to let down a boat and load it with the most indispensable necessities i stood up there in the most terrible agony struggling for a decision on me rested every responsibility and the moment came when i had to make my choice to abandon the yoa take to the boats and let her be smashed up or to dare the worst and perchance go to meet death with all souls on board i slid as quickly as i could down one of the backstays on to the deck we will clear the boats and load them with provisions rifles and ammunition then lund who stood nearest asked whether we might not make a last attempt by casting the remainder of the deck cargo overboard this was in fact my own secret ardent desire to which i had not dared yield for the sake of the others now all with one accord agreed with lund and hey presto we went for the deck cargo we set two in pairs and cases of four hundredweight were flung over the rail like trusses of hay this done i climbed up into the rigging again there was not more than a boat's length between us and the shallowest part the spray and the sleet were washing over the vessel the mast trembled and the yoa seemed to pull herself together for a last final leap she was lifted up high and flung bodily on to the bare rocks bump bump with terrific force in my distress i sent up i honestly confess it an ardent prayer to the almighty yet another thump worse than ever then one more and we slid off i flew up to the top not a moment was to be lost everything now depended on our finding a way out among all the shoals which were lying close around us lieutenant hansen stood at the wheel cool and collected a splendid fellow and now he called out there is something wrong with the rudder it will not steer should this after all be the end should we drift down on the island there on our lee then the boat pitched once more over a crest and i heard a glad shout the rudder is all right again the most wonderful thing had happened the first shock had lifted the rudder so that it rested with the pintles on the mountings but the last shock had brought it back into its place it was a rare thing to see any frantic enthusiasm on board the yoa we were all pretty quiet and cool by nature but this time the jubilation could not be controlled and it burst out unrestrained the maneuvers that followed were far from agreeable the banks lay all around us and the vessel would not answer the helm as well as she usually did we were drenched to the skin and our teeth chattered with cold the lead line was brought into requisition and from that hour the yoa did not make another quarter of a mile of the northwest passage without one man aloft and another plying the lead we had been taught one lesson and we did not want another of the same kind under sail and engine we soon stood over toward boothia felix where we soon found deeper water at noon we anchored to the leeward of cape christian frederick in five fathoms of water a strong breeze was blowing from the northeast we dropped both anchors at the same time one with thirty and the other with forty-five fathoms of chain we had to make various repairs after the stranding and besides we were all fairly worn out after our toil and the severe mental strain in the afternoon some of us rode to the shore to inspect it more closely and deposit a report in a cairn 
I had agreed with Nansen how these cairns were to be built. They were to be erected on the most prominent points and always in couples. The report was to be deposited in the larger one, and the smaller one was to be built 13 feet due north of the other. Should it become necessary to send out an expedition after us, they would be able to recognize our cairns from a considerable distance. The geologist took his observations and collected a quantity of fossils. The sportsman made an excursion inland and saw several reindeer. I myself sauntered round and explored some old rings where Eskimo tents had stood. There were many of these rings. When it was getting dark, we rowed back to the vessel. The wind was slack, blowing from the land. When lying at anchor, one man was always on the watch. The rest went to sleep. At eleven o'clock, the watch came and reported that a stiff wind was blowing from the south. When I came on deck, it looked uncanny. It was completely dark, and there was a stiff sea breeze blowing. We had no option. It was impossible to leave our anchorage, as the water was so full of shallows. We paid out all the chain and hoped for the best. All hands were called up, and seeing the position we were in made everything clear in case we should run aground. We expected the anchor chains to part every moment owing to the heavy choppy sea and the force of the gale. The anchorage presented a hard bottom, but luckily one anchor had caught in the cavity of a rock. We filled the flat-bottomed boat and the canvas boats with provisions and other necessaries. Each man had his task assigned to him, and we were ready should the chains snap. The engine was kept working full steam ahead to relieve the strain on the anchors. Fortunately, the chains held, but there we lay for five days and nights in terror, while the gale boxed the compass. It was not until 4 a.m. on the 8th that we were able to weigh anchor. A fresh wind was then blowing from the northwest. The charts, prepared at a season of the year when the snow covering everything misled the draftsmen, were of no more use here than they are in any other parts of these channels. It was impossible to work by them. When off Dandis Islands, we lost sight of land in the thickly falling snow. This was owing to our having to stand further out on suddenly getting ten fathoms with a lead just after getting no bottom. We were probably crossing a ledge extending from the Dundas Islands. Near Cape Christian Frederick, the sea bottom changes from rock to clay, and as the color turns to light green, it is difficult to detect the shoals. At 3 p.m., we saw land right ahead, and I decided to bear down on it and seek a shelter for the night. The land lay very low and extended southwards in projecting points. I took the point I was heading for to be De La Guiche Point on the American mainland. But when we were still some distance from the coast, the soundings decreased to four fathoms, and having in a clear interval sighted land on the opposite shore, we veered round and headed across the straits, hoping to find a refuge there. The land there was elevated, and we took it to be Mount Matheson on King William Land. By this time it was 5.30 p.m., and the prospect of getting there before dark was slight. The coast we had left terminated in a low point jutting out to the southwest, where the charts marked Cape Colville. If this was correct, Stanley Island, which forms the eastern shore of Ray Straits, ought to be in sight, but it was not. At 6 p.m. we got near three very low skerries. The current set strongly to the south and threatened to take us on these, but we had cleared them when the wind freshened. Darkness fell before we sighted the high land again, and we had to shorten sail. The engine was kept going to prevent our making much leeway in the strong current. We took soundings all through the night. According to our reckoning, we should, during the night, have worked our way to the coast of King William Land. Our surprise was, therefore, great when, as soon as it was daylight, we found we were off the coast which we had on the previous day taken for Guich Point. The current had carried us away in spite of sails and engine and drifted us right in the opposite direction. We again set our course for the high land and an hour's sailing brought us in sight of it. And as we also sighted the three small skerries, our position was clear. The high land must have been Mount Matheson, and the skerries were the Stanley Islands. 
In other words, we were in the middle of Ray Straits. To our pleasant surprise, the sounding showed no bottom, and as we neared King William Land, the weather became quite clear, with a fresh breeze from the north. From Mount Matheson, a long stretch of low-lying land extended in a southeasterly direction. This being the terminal point of King William Land, we christened it Point Luigi d'Abruzzi in memory of the Duke d'Abruzzi. A number of small islands off the coast were not charted. These we called Evan Astrup's Islands. These islands and the Duke de Abruzzi's Point form a good safe entrance to Simpson Strait. From the point to Newmire Peninsula, there is a very wide bay, Schwatka Bay, extending about 10 miles inland. A fresh northerly wind was blowing from this bay. When we were off Betzold Point, I decided to stand in for Pedersen's Bay and anchor there for the night. This proved to be a very lucky hit. There was perfectly smooth water under the lee, and although we had to tack up the bay, we managed it very quickly. From the deck, there was nothing particular to be seen except the large wide bay. But Hansen, who was on the lookout aloft, saw more than we did. He suddenly called out, I see the finest little harbor in the world. I climbed up to him, and true enough, I saw a small harbor quite sheltered from the wind, a veritable haven of rest for us weary travelers. We afterwards christened it Yoahaven. We anchored outside in four fathoms of water. The wind was blowing strong from the narrow entrance, but we would not venture any nearer till we had taken soundings and surveyed the shore. To the westward, Simpson Strait appeared quite free from ice. The Northwest Passage was therefore open to us, but our first and foremost task was to obtain exact data as to the magnetic North Pole, and so the passage, being of less importance, had to be left in abeyance. As soon as I saw Joachim, I decided to choose it for our winter quarters. It was evident that the autumn storms had set in in earnest, and I knew the waters further west were very shallow. Before deciding definitely upon this course, I intended to explore the harbor in a boat. The magnetic pole, as shown by our observations, appeared to be situated somewhere in the neighborhood of its old position, and as Joachim was about 90 miles from that locality, it should, according to the dicta of scientific men, be particularly suited for a fixed magnetic station. If we were to get our observatories built, and everything else set in order for wintering here, we should have to bestir ourselves. We had, moreover, been working very hard during the last few weeks and needed a rest. As regards myself, at any rate, I confess that I wanted breathing time. So why look further west for a harbor which possibly we should not find? Had the completion of the Northwest Passage been our chief object, it would have been a different matter, and nothing would have prevented us from going further on. At 6 p.m. I rode into the harbor with the Lieutenant Hansen and Lund. The entrance was not wide. At the narrowest part, there was scarcely room for two vessels to pass each other, but the soundings, averaging six fathoms, gave ample depth. The harbor itself was all that could be desired. The narrow entrance would prevent the intrusion of large masses of ice, and the inner basin was so small that no wind could trouble us there from whatever quarter it blew. The shore around the harbor was very low, sandy, moss-clad ground, gradually rising to a height of about 160 feet. Two little streams provided fresh water. If these dried up, as seemed probable, there was, right on the crest of the ridge, a fairly large pond containing drinkable water. A number of cairns and tent circles showed that Eskimo had been here, but that, of course, might have been a long time ago. Fresh reindeer tracks gave hope of sport. There was not a trace of snow, and large stretches of moss were quite parched, showing that the summer had been very warm. The spot seemed eminently suitable for a magnetic station. There was no rocky land in any direction which, by the iron contained in it, might have a disturbing effect on the observations. The sand, of course, might be ferriferous, but there was little probability of that. The results of our investigations proved favorable in every respect to the great joy of all on board. 
The day after, Lund, Hansen, and Ristbet went ashore to test the chances of sport. In the afternoon, they returned with two reindeer calves and one doe. They had seen a large herd of reindeer and a quantity of birds. Our mouths watered when they told us of large flocks of geese. For the rest, they said that the country was an ideal one for reindeer, being flat, mossy, and abounding in streams and lakes. Eventually, on Saturday, September 12th, at 7.30 p.m., the north wind fell sufficiently to permit our venturing in with the aid of the engine. At 8.30, the Yoa was anchored in Yoahaven. We had got thus far. A good deal of work had been done, and we had every reason to be pleased. Before I continue my narrative, I think it is appropriate, at this point, to explain as briefly as possible the nature of terrestrial magnetism and the use of our magnetic instruments. The magnetic force of the earth manifests itself differently as regards its direction and intensity at every single point of the earth's surface, and even at one at the same point it is not constantly the same. It is subject to regular daily and annual variations, and more or less violent disturbances frequently arise. Lastly, slight gradual displacements manifest themselves from year to year, which continue at the same rate for long cycles of years. All this has been found by observations made in the course of generations all over the globe, partly during voyages and travels, partly at fixed stations. A close study of the material results of observations extant at the time led Gauss, the great German mathematician in the 30s of the last century, to set up a theory on the connection existing between the various phenomena of terrestrial magnetism and their varying manifestations at a given moment, according to the geographical latitude and longitude. Thereby, it became possible to draw up three different charts, of which two indicated the direction of the magnetic force, and the third showed its intensity. The reason why two charts are required to show the direction of the force is that the direction must be shown both in relation to the geographical north-to-south line of the place and in relation to the horizontal plane of the place. The direction of terrestrial magnetic force in relation to the north-to-south line can be observed with the aid of a compass needle of which the end pointing toward the north is known as a rule to be directed a little to the east or a little to the west of true north. This variation is also called deviation or declination. On chart number one, lines are drawn which show the direction of the compass needle at every point of the Earth's surface. These lines, which are called magnetic meridians, converge, as will be seen, in two points, to wit the magnetic north pole near the North American Arctic coast and the magnetic south pole situated on the Antarctic mainland. Each line indicates, as will be readily understood, the course with which one would have to take if traveling straight ahead exactly in the direction indicated either by the north point or by the south point of the needle. If the former, we should in the end arrive at the magnetic north pole. If the latter, we should reach the magnetic south pole. Chart number two gives us an idea as to the direction of magnetic force in relation to the horizontal plane in various parts of the world. If we fit up a magnetic needle so that it can revolve on a horizontal axis passing through its center of gravity, exactly like a grindstone, the needle will, of its own accord, assume a slanting position if its plane of rotation coincides with the direction indicated by the compass. Such an apparatus is called an inclinatorium or dipping needle, and the angle which the dipping needle forms with a horizontal plane is called the magnetic inclination for the respective locality. Here, in our regions, it is the north point of the needle which dips toward the earth, but in Australia, it is the south point of the needle. At the magnetic north pole, the dipping needle will assume a vertical position with its north point directed downwards. At the magnetic south pole, it will stand vertically with its south point downwards. Hence, in both places, the inclination is 90 degrees, and it will decrease in proportion as we move further away from the poles. In a series of points in the tropics, the inclination is zero degrees, that is to say, 
the dipping needle assumes an exactly horizontal position. The imaginary line drawn through all these points is called a magnetic equator. This is situated partly north and partly south of the geographical equator. It will be understood that terrestrial magnetism acts with its full intensity in the direction indicated by the dipping needle, and the question may be raised how great this intensity would be in any particular locality. In order to elucidate this, we will imagine the magnetic force to be split up into two components, one acting horizontally and the other vertically. Evidently, it is the horizontal component of the force which causes the compass needle to point in a certain direction. And if we can determine this component of the horizontal intensity, as it is called, and if, at the same time, we know the inclination, it is easy by a simple calculation to find the aggregate power, the total intensity. For determining the horizontal intensity, two methods were employed, either each separately or, preferably, for checking purposes, both together. One method consists in fitting up a bar magnet by the side of a compass needle at a stated distance from the latter and observing how many degrees the needle is deflected from its original position. It is manifest that this deflection will be all the greater the less the horizontal intensity is in the respective locality. And if we know the magnetic power of the bar magnet used, we can calculate the horizontal intensity from the angle of deflection and the distance between the bar magnet and the needle. The second method is based on the observation of the period of oscillation of a bar magnet suspended on a thread so that it can turn in the horizontal plane. When the magnet is in a state of rest, it points under the influence of the horizontal intensity in the same direction as the compass needle. If now it is brought out of the position of equilibrium by a slight tap, it will oscillate to and fro and the greater the horizontal intensity, the more quickly it will return to its state of rest. In other words, the shorter will be the period of each oscillation. If now we know the magnetic power of the oscillating magnet, and observe how many seconds it requires for each oscillation, we can calculate the horizontal intensity. Chart number three gives us an idea of the value of the horizontal intensity expressed in so-called electric units, for the various parts of the Earth. Each line passes, respectively, through all the places in which the horizontal intensity is identical. It will be seen that the horizontal intensity decreases toward the magnetic poles. This, in fact, is self-evident, because at the poles, where the inclination is 90 degrees, terrestrial magnetism acts with its full force in a vertical direction downwards, and therefore cannot exert any influence on the horizontal direction. However much the charts here shown may differ, they agree in this that the magnetic north and south poles are the cardinal points on the Earth's surface, and it is evident that magnetic observations made exactly on these points, or in their immediate neighborhood, must be of greatest interest to the science of terrestrial magnetism. Gauss's theory does not by a long way explain all of the problems presented by the terrestrial magnetic phenomena, but men of science are continually laboring to complete it by collecting the most reliable and exhaustive observations which it is possible to obtain. The labors of the Yoa expedition in this direction were intended to form a contribution toward these data, but the difficulties were no slight ones. The circumstances alone that, as we have seen, the horizontal intensity becomes infinitesimal in the neighborhood of the magnetic pole calls for extraordinary precautions in order to determine both this and the variation. The equipment, or the instruments of the Yola, had, in fact, been specially adapted to these conditions. The magnets, 14 in number, to be used for determining the horizontal intensity, had been selected with great care in Potsdam before our departure. For determining the inclination, there were three dipping needles of different construction, and for determining the declination, we had two different instruments. In addition to these, we had a set of self-registering variation apparatus. That is to say, three instruments fitted up on a firm base in a dark room, each containing a small magnetic needle of which two were suspended upon a fine quartz thread 
and the third pivoted on delicate bearings so that the needle responded by its movements to the slightest fluctuations the first to show those of the declination the second to show those of the horizontal intensity and the third to those of the inclination each needle was provided with a mirror which reflected the light of a lamp upon a drum covered with sensitized paper which by means of clockwork made one revolution in twenty-four hours the arrangement was such as to cause the ray of light reflected from each of the three needles to strike the drum at varying heights and produce a little dark spot but as the drum with the paper was revolving each little spot steadily advanced on the paper and produced a continuous dark line thus when at the end of twenty-four hours the paper was removed three dark more or less irregular lines had been produced one above the other on the paper in addition to the three straight horizontal direction lines the illustrations above show examples of the three magnetic variation diagrams for a period of twenty-four hours during quiescent magnetic conditions and for a period of twenty-four hours during which magnetic disturbances arose from what has been previously stated it will be readily understood that it would not do to select the pole itself as the site of a fixed station for observation even if we knew its exact situation beforehand and if we could take it for granted that it remained immutably in one and the same spot in accordance with professor adolphus schmidt's advice i therefore decided to establish the base station where the variation instruments were to be fitted up so far away from the pole that the inclination would be about eighty-nine degrees the day after my arrival i went ashore with my dipping needle to examine the magnetic conditions of the place a series of observations gave an inclination of eighty-nine degrees fifteen minutes or about ninety nautical miles distance from the pole itself it could not have suited us better we could not go any nearer on monday september fourteenth at five a m we brought the vessel right up to the bank and berthed there just as we should alongside a quay we were thus ready to commence preparations for our proposed winter quarters first came the turn of the dogs who were all taken ashore in the flat-bottomed boat selecting a sheltered little valley we drove into the sand two wooden stakes stretched a rope between them and tied the dogs to the rope the dogs of course were highly affronted at being thus summarily ejected from the ship but it was a great relief for us to get rid of them as they were in the way and gave no end of trouble there after this eviction we constructed an aerial ropeway to facilitate unloading as it was my intention to carry all provisions ashore so as to make as much room as possible on board lindstrom also was to have a room in the hold for all his cooking apparatus the ropeway consisted of a steel cable stretched across from the middle of the mast to the old coastline about twenty yards above the present one where we had found a convenient storage place for the cases ashore the rope was made fast to the kedge which we had buried fully a yard deep in the sand and hooked fast in the frozen subsoil a pulley block traveled to and fro on the cable with an in-hauler both ashore and on board the cases were hoisted out of the hole by means of a tackle hitched to the pulley block and let go they then traveled ashore quite smartly Risvet and myself received the cases on shore the others were busy with them on board we landed them on a bed of planks as soon as a case came on shore we knocked off the wooden lid turned the case upside down and lifted off the outer wooden case so that the inner tin chest was laid bare an exact sketch was prepared of the chests when placed in position and the numbers and contents noted down so that we could at any time find what we wanted the empty wooden cases were carefully collected and put aside to serve later on as building materials we worked from five a m to six p m the eight hours day was not yet introduced among us that was to come later on we had some foretaste of winter in the form of snow and sleet but we hoped that it would still keep off and give us time to get ready by the afternoon of the seventeenth the work of discharging was finished 
we put up a sailcloth awning over the cases and the whole thing looked very smart as this provision store lay on rising ground there was a possibility of moisture filtering in although the soil was sandy and the water would therefore probably sink into the ground but for greater security we dug a deep trench around the whole shed after the provisions the explosives came next in turn these were carried far inshore and a little shed was built over them subsequently our clothing and all the goods which would not bear moisture were brought over to the storehouse which in fact proved to be the driest place we had then we began clearing up on board first of all we set the hold in order then the galley which was amidships was unscrewed taken to pieces and set up again in the hold lindstrom was thus in command below and had his kitchen there from september nineteen o three to june nineteen o five this work demanded the assistance of all hands afterwards in order to accomplish as much as possible before the winter set in we divided ourselves into two parties first and foremost it was necessary to get our observatory erected and to procure fresh meat for the winter reindeer had hitherto shown themselves very rarely in our neighborhood lund and hansen were therefore sent out on a boat trip to the little island of etta which lies in the middle of simpson strait and where i knew from reports that reindeer used to come in autumn in large herds on september twenty first they went off in the dory provisioned for a fortnight we who remained took the building operations in hand wick had meantime determined the magnetic meridian the line of variation from the true north to south line showing in what direction the magnetic variation house with its self-registering instruments was to be set up the outer cases of the provision chests which were intended to serve as building material for this construction were carefully examined to make sure that there were no iron nails in them they were all made up to uniform size and joined with copper nails which would not exert any influence on the magnetic observations we selected the building site on the crest of the ridge facing simpson strait a foundation of stone was laid down and cemented over to form the base on which the instruments were to rest then we built the house case after case was set up and filled with sand this took forty cases outside and inside the house was covered with waterproof felt and finally the hole was weighted down with sand around the whole building we dug a deep trench to carry off the water it was lieutenant hansen and myself who had to do this job and we well remember it more than once we stretched our aching backs unaccustomed to this kind of work and wished trench digging to the deuce but we managed it and on september twenty sixth the observatory was quite ready lund and hansen came back from their hunting expedition late that night they had been lucky and the boat was loaded with twenty carcasses of reindeer at a distance barely twelve miles from the harbor they had found a spot where there were large herds of reindeer but the animals were very shy and difficult to get at they put up a tent and hunted for several days this place was near booth point which later on became a familiar spot as we met eskimo who had their camp there the eskimo told us afterwards that they had seen our huntsmen but dared not approach them for fear of the guns hansen and lund reported that the land we saw to the south of our station was not ogle point as we thought but an island they had gone so far southwest that they could see the island clear on all sides it greatly surprised me to find an island there not charted by mcclintock but our huntsman's statement was verified presumably mcclintock passed it in a fog on the twenty ninth we commenced building the house in which vristet and wick were to live sixty cases were required for this it found a site on the same ridge on which the observatory was erected two hundred fifty feet away and with a commanding outlook on all sides we also did sundry work on board double skylights were put in oil stoves were set up and the ventilation was improved we made ourselves comfortable in the cabin and it was very enjoyable after finishing the day's work to come into the cozy well-lighted room and have a good meal we lounged about on those nights 
with an exquisite sense of comfort after the rough daily toil. We could not but feel that we had been very fortunate in every way, not least as regards meat, as the twenty reindeer carcasses had been well quartered and hung. It was now so cold that there was no fear of it going bad. Finally, on the twenty-ninth, the whole vessel was covered in with sailcloth, and we were ready to stand the winter on board. End of chapter 3